Welcome to this week's What Your GP Doesn't Tell You with me, Liz Tucker. This week's extraordinary story is a perfect illustration of what this podcast is trying to do. To find out what the medical evidence actually is, as opposed to what we might hope or think it says. It concerns Neurontin, one of the world's top selling drugs, and it centres on a unique court case, which for the very first time accused a drug company, Pfizer, and its subsidiary, Warner Lambert, of racketeering under the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organisations Act, a piece of legislation that was actually brought in to tackle organised crime. The company was accused of off-label marketing of Neurontin, for bipolar disorder, neuropathic pain and migraine. Telling the story is Dr John Abramson, who's based at the Harvard Medical School, where he teaches healthcare policy. John has written several books about the pharmaceutical industry and consults as an expert in litigation, and he was a witness in this trial. And although the court case happened over a decade ago, what was discovered remains highly relevant today. But before we get to John's interview... Thank you so much to everyone who's got in touch to say how much they're enjoying the podcast. Really appreciate it and fantastic to see there are now listeners in 44 countries. If you enjoy the pod, it would be a huge help if you could leave a review on Apple and Spotify. It really helps the visibility of the pod and so makes it easier for others to find too. And if you could share and recommend the pod to friends and family, that would be a huge help. You can also sign up to the podcast mailing list at whatyourgpdoesnttellyou.com. So now back to the interview with John. The court case had been brought by Kaiser Foundation Health Plan, one of the US's major insurers, who alleged that Pfizer and its Warner-Lambert subsidiary had encouraged doctors to use Neurontin not just for its approved use, but for several unapproved uses, something that's known as off-label marketing and is illegal. Here's the interview with John. So John, thanks very much indeed for joining the podcast today. Well, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Liz. Just to give a bit of background to the court case that you were involved with, the drug Neurontin had been approved by the US regulator, the FDA, for secondary treatment of epilepsy and persistent nerve pain after shingles. But in fact, it turned out that it was being prescribed for a number of other conditions. Why is that an issue? It's an issue because approximately 90% of Neurontin was being used for off-label indications. And the question is, how did doctors come to believe that it was a good idea to treat their patients off-label with Neurontin? And that's what the trial that I was involved in was all about, was did that happen uh, as a spontaneous response of practicing physicians to try to find the best therapy for their patients? Or was that a premeditated, highly focused campaign on the manufacturer's part to convince physicians that they should prescribe off-label for these indications. So just to be clear, so off-label use is when a doctor prescribes a medicine for a condition for which it's not been approved by the regulator. That's exactly right. So when the regulator approves a medication for an indication, it's not a general approval for whatever you want. The manufacturer supplies clinical trial data that the manufacturer believes shows that it's safe and effective, the drug is safe and effective for that indication. Once a drug is approved by the FDA, or I assume it's the same in the UK, doctors can prescribe it for whatever they want. They're not limited to prescribing it for the approved indication. 
But in the U.S., it's illegal to market these drugs off-label. So it's not illegal for doctors to prescribe drugs off-label, but it is illegal for pharmaceutical companies in the U.S. to market drugs for conditions which have not been approved by the regulator. Correct. There's a narrow lane for the uh, manufacturer to communicate with practicing physicians about that. If a physician asks a drug drug rep, hey, Neurontin is an anti-seizure drug. Might it be helpful for neuropathic pain? That's called an unsolicited request for information. And when a drug rep gets an unsolicited request for information, then it's legal for that drug rep to pass that request on to the medical division of the drug company, not the marketing division, and for the medical division to communicate directly with that doctor about the off-label evidence. So, John, what had happened in this case was that Kaiser Foundation Health Plan, which is one of the major U.S. health insurers, was taking action against Pfizer and Warren Lambert. Neurontin had actually been developed by Park Davis, which is an operating division of Warner Lambert. And Warner Lambert had been acquired by Pfizer in 2000. And the key point was that Kaiser were alleging that the defendants were encouraging doctors to use Neurontin not just for its approved uses, but for several different unapproved uses. Correct. And was uh, making scientifically unsubstantiated claims about the efficacy of Neurontin for those unapproved uses. And the unusual thing in this case was that Kaiser was also alleging that Pfizer and Warner Lambert had committed racketeering. They were accused of violating the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act which was the very first time a drug company had ever been accused of this. Correct. And that's really important because if the jury find the drug company guilty, because of the racketeering activity, any financial penalty will in fact be tripled. That's correct. You tend to think of racketeering violations as criminal violations, uh, not civil violations. In this case, this was a civil trial. Kaiser was attempting to recoup its losses in what it paid for Neurontin, allegedly based on Pfizer's unsubstantiated and off-label claims. Now, in a court case, as an expert witness, you're in a unique position because you have access to all the data about a drug. Because I think what a lot of people don't know, even many doctors, is that's incredibly unusual. That's correct. Getting into the weeds in these issues takes an enormous amount of time. The only place where real peer review happens is in litigation, because there the two teams, the defendants and the plaintiff's teams, get to ask for whatever data they want and have the time to analyze it. And it's just not feasible for a regulator to be able to do that for every drug trial. That is true. And there's another issue that's very important in this, Liz, which is the drug regulators will typically get the clinical study report, which is up to several thousand pages in length. It's tabulated data. It's not the actual patient-level data, so you can't reanalyze it. It's tabulated data, and it doesn't always present the most important data. So it's not that you can go back to the raw data and draw your own conclusions. You're largely led by the conclusions that the drug company is presenting. That's right. And a, and a, a really important part of this conversation is that this same lack of access to the primary data is true for the peer reviewers and the medical journal editors. Doctors assume that the peer reviewers have made a thorough analysis, independent analysis 
of the completeness and the accuracy of the data before it gets published and certified as uh, as legitimate evidence-based medicine uh, by publication in a reputable journal. But the truth is that the peer reviewers and the medical journal editors do not have access to that information because they don't get nearly as much data as the FDA gets. They don't get the clinical study reports. Uh, so they have to trust the manuscripts that are generally written in conjunction with or by the manufacturer, the peer reviewers have to trust that that manuscript is accurate without being able to verify it, which is an absurd situation. So, John, in the Neurompton Court case, one of your first challenges was to look at the clinical trial data for one of the off-label conditions that it was alleged that the drug was being used for, which was bipolar disorder. Yes. And just to be clear to listeners during the course of this podcast, Park Davis company who originally developed the drug Neurontin were bought by Pfizer in 2000. So some of the early research was done by Park Davis. So sometimes in the podcast, you'll hear a reference to Park Davis, sometimes to Pfizer, depending on the timeline. So John, when you looked at the data for bipolar disorder, what did you find? So what I found is that the evidence that Park Davis was showing to doctors in continuing medical education courses was a study called the Young Study. In, and in that Young Study, 15 people with bipolar disorder were treated with Neurontin. It wasn't a randomized controlled trial. Um, it wasn't blinded with neuroderate or uh, large improvement. And that, that's the study that they showed to doctors but they had another study that they weren't showing to doctors that had been completed, I think, in 1997, that was a good study, a randomized controlled trial of people who did not have an adequate clinical response to their current therapy, and they were put on Neurontin or a placebo. And the people who took the placebo drug in that trial did significantly better on symptoms of bipolar disorder than the people who were treated with Neurontin. So the problem here is that Pfizer was out educating doctors to use Neurontin for bipolar disorder based on 15 patients when they had a really well-designed study, randomized controlled uh, blinded study that showed that the drug not only was not effective, but was significantly worse than placebo. If I was a doctor looking at this data, I think I'd be a little bit cautious because the trial only actually involved 15 patients. If that were the only evidence and doctors were confronted with patients who were not getting better and needed additional therapy, it would have an impact on physicians to have a clue that it might be helpful. And that was the problem here is presenting this evidence that suggested to doctors that this might be worth trying in people with bipolar disorder who weren't responding to medication, when in fact they had the randomized trial and they weren't publishing it. They weren't telling doctors about it and they weren't publishing it. And that's a wider problem, isn't it? Because too often negative results don't get published and negative results can be as important as positive results for telling us about a drug. Absolutely. So the, the double-blind trial that actually shows that the drug is worse than a placebo, it's not published initially but it's published in 2000. Why is it published at that point? The short answer is I don't know. But from all my experience in litigation and in seeing the corporate computers, that once they establish a therapy 
And once doctors adopt that therapy as effective, it's very difficult to go back and correct the record so that doctors understand what's going on. Um, this exact situation happened when Prilosec uh, was replaced by Nexium. So they're proton pump inhibitors that decrease acidity in the stomach, and they do that very effectively. And AstraZeneca's biggest drug and the best-selling drug in the world, I think, was Prilosec until its patent ran out, and then they replaced it with Nexium and claimed that their studies showed that Nexium was superior to Prilosec. What they had done was withheld the studies that didn't show that Nexium was superior for about four years so that doctors learned to use Nexium in the place of Prilosec and then continue to do so. And I, I think that's what we're talking about here is that Clark Davis made a, a good effort to, uh, quote, educate, with air quotes around educate, doctors that um, Neurontin is effective for bipolar disorder when they knew it wasn't, but they withheld the evidence that showed it wasn't. In fact, it was significantly worse. They withheld that evidence while they were teaching doctors to use it for bipolar disorder. Once they got the doctors taught that they could use it, then publishing the data is much less harmful to their sales. There are then three more trials that found Neurontin was no better than a placebo for bipolar disorder. Mm -hmm. But despite this, between 1996 and 1999, there's a huge increase in the use of Neurontin for bipolar Correct. disorder. And that um, there was a, an economist involved in this, in analyzing that increase to figure out what percentage of the increase was due to doctors just sharing information amongst themselves that, hey, maybe you want to try this in a tough patient who's not responding to therapy versus the off-label marketing that was feeding this information, um, incomplete information to doctors. And what the economists found is that 99.4% of the increase in the use of Neurontin for bipolar disorder was explained off-label marketing, 99.4%. The reason that Park Davis were able to do this was continuing medical education. Doctors have to go to continuing medical education courses. They need 50 hours a year of continuing medical education. A large part of continuing medical education is funded by the pharmaceutical industry. Yes, thank you. In this case, they were uh, presenting continuing medical education activities that were off-label that they were playing a role in, and that is illegal. I think it's important to say, John, that these continuing medical education courses involved a large number of doctors. The court documents revealed that Park Davis held continuing medical education courses for over 14,000 doctors in more than 30 cities. That's correct. Key point here is how doctors receive information, how doctors determine that information that is presented to them is trustworthy and credible enough for them to adopt into their professional thinking. And um, what is not understood by the public or by the government regulators is how vulnerable doctors are to misrepresentations that the drug companies make. The doctors, um, we know how to get good grades, but we're, we're not taught in the United States to be critical thinkers. We're taught to absorb information, to um, digest it, and then to implement it. 
And as I was saying before, it's so absurd that peer reviewers don't get to see the data, yet doctors are trusting peer-reviewed articles as evidence-based medicine. There's a tremendous respect in the medical community for medical journals. And the more prestigious journals, the more respect. And if an abstract says that a drug has been proven to be effective, doctors will believe That's it. That's correct. And it's it's a little, there's another layer to this list that is really important. A significant source of income for the journals is the sale of reprints of the articles they publish back to the manufacturers so that their drug reps can hand it out to practicing physicians as evidence of uh, the credibility of the information they're receiving about the drug. This creates an enormous conflict of interest. Richard Smith, the former editor of the BMJ, uh, wrote that after he stepped down as editor, after spending 25 years working at the BMJ, he finally understood what was going on with the reprints. And he said, it's a market failure issue because the journals have an incentive to accept these uh, these clinical trials that are going to sway the practice of medicine. The journals have an incentive to publish those. And without government intervention to protect people and to protect the doctors in each country, we're not going to have progress on this. I think if you and I were, were in charge of a commission that said, how can we ensure that the public gets the most benefit out of clinical research, one of the first things that we would say is that peer review must be transparent. And yet this issue has been known for 20 years, but there has not been any progress in transparency. This is a major problem in medicine. And reprints are a major component of profits for some of the medical journals. A successful trial may have hundreds of thousands of reprints, which will be a major financial generator for the journals. That's exactly right. Um, The last data uh, that uh, Richard Smith had access to showed that uh, in 2005, 41% of the Lancet's profits were uh, from reprints. I think the average sales of reprints for a clinically important article for the Lancet was almost $500,000. And I know that um, in the case of Vioxx for the Vigor trial that supposedly showed that Vioxx caused fewer serious GI complications, the New England Journal sold 929,000 reprints of that article. I mean, that's far more than one for every practicing uh, healthcare professional in the United States. Do you think doctors should sometimes be more skeptical when they're looking at clinical data or reading the latest peer-reviewed journals? Liz, that's a very important question. And I was a practicing family physician for more than 20 years. I know what it's like to be on the front line. I know what it's like to have this uh, literal tsunami of information coming at me and trying to keep up so that I can practice the best medicine possible for my patients. And I had done a Robert Wood Johnson Fellowship in the United States. It was a two-year program Uh, where I learned uh, uh, statistics, research design, and epidemiology. So I had some understanding of these issues. But there's no way, as a practicing physician, I could keep up with this. It's it's more than a full-time job to keep up just with this, not to take care of any patients. But if I'm a doctor and I'm aware that drug companies are not allowed to market drugs for off-label use, and at that stage, 
there's not really any good published evidence that the drug works for bipolar disorder. Should I be asking questions? You should, but the system shouldn't have to rely on that. That's what the Neurontin trial was about, because um, doctors can't do their own research. And when they're trained to receive information from certain sources that looks legitimate, when the drug rep comes in and offers them a multicolor flyer or brochure that shows them in the language that they've been taught about the biochemistry and neurophysiology of, of, of uh, bipolar disorder to the extent that we know anything about it. But when they're, when they are presented with that information from a drug rep, most doctors um, are, have a predisposition to be courteous, to accept easy information. I mean, it's much, uh, it's much more of a gift than a pizza um, to get easy information and think that they're up to snuff quickly. And the doctors just are not equipped to judge that material on its merits. They just can't do it, which is why in the United States, it's illegal to market off-label. So in the trial at this point, you've established that there's not an evidence base for using the drug for bipolar disorder. The trials just don't support that. And another condition that Neurontin was being marketed for was nerve pain. And this time, I think there's an early study in 1997 from Park Davis, which appears to suggest that Neurontin has the potential to reduce diabetic pain. Sort of. That study, the 1997 study, was done by a researcher named Gorson. When he faxed the results in uh, in 1997, and he concluded that uh, Neurontin at a dose of 900 milligrams per day is probably no more effective than placebo in the treatment of painful diabetic neuropathy. But when he faxed it in, an employee of Park Davis changed the language in Gorson's fax to say there was substantial reduction in pain on three pain scores. That language was integrated into an abstract that was published in the journal Neurology, which concluded not what Gorson had said, which is, is probably no more effective than placebo, what the abstract in neurology said may be effective for the treatment of painful diabetic neuropathy. Again, this is this like bipolar disease, uh, painful diabetic neuropathy is very hard to treat, and doctors will certainly jump on anything that provides an opportunity to relieve their patient's pain without using an opioid. So when the manufacturer of Neurontin changes the language from probably no more effective to uh, maybe effective in the treatment of painful diabetic neuropathy, that is going to have a significant impact on physicians to lead them to try this for patient, their patients who are suffering. But that was published in the peer-reviewed journal Neurology. What are the peer reviewers doing? Well, the peer reviewers probably weren't in on this at all. It's an abstract. It was in a supplement. So it's probably not peer-reviewed. And those same results were also presented at a large conference. Correct. So basically, it's only an abstract, but it's published in a respective peer review journal, which suggests there's a benefit. Yes. So when you started to really dig into this trial, what did you find? When I dug into the Gorson trial, I found that only one of the four pain outcomes showed a significant benefit. And what the um, manufacturers had done 
with that uh, abstract in neurology was they presented significant results for in pain relief for the people who took Neurontin, but they didn't compare that to the people who took placebo. So what they found is that the people who took Neurontin, just one arm of the, of the two-arm study, the people who took Neurontin got significantly better. That's not valid information that they got significantly better. That's why we have randomized controlled trials. The way to understand whether a study shows benefit or not is not to look at the difference from the beginning to the end of the trial in the people who took the active drug, but it's the difference between the people who took the active drug and the people who took the control drug. That's the key outcome measure that um, need, needs to be made. And what um, the manufacturer of Neurontin did in this abstract in neurology was it led with data claiming to show that Neurontin was effective because the people in just the Neurontin arm had significant improvement. They've created the impression that Neurontin is beneficial where there was not a significant improvement. So just to be clear, you know, there's no point including a placebo group in your trial if you then ignore the results from the placebo group. You no longer have a randomized controlled trial. That's exactly right. And that's where we got to in the Neurontin trial in federal court, just standing next to the jury, literally next to the jury box, drawing a line of the decrease in pain over, I think, eight weeks in the people who took Neurontin and showing the jury that that decrease was statistically significant, but then showing the jury drawing another line on the easel and showing this is the control group, which almost mirrors the Neurontin group, and there's no statistically significant difference. And there was no question that the jury, who's made up of ordinary non-professional people, if they can understand it, certainly doctors can understand it. And of course, pain is a subjective measure and might well get better on its own anyway, which could also help explain the decrease in pain scores towards the end. That's exactly right. And that's what the control group showed, that their pain scores improved too. After this, there's then a further drug company-sponsored study, which is now published in one of the world's most prestigious journals, the Journal of the American Medical Association. What does that show? That study shows that Neurontin is significantly more effective for treating diabetic neuropathy than placebo. This was a small study. I think there were 84 people in it. But when it was published in JAMA, Journal of the American Medical Association, the manufacturer hired a PR firm to make these results widely known. And the PR firm was so successful that in the United States, there were 85 million impressions cast out on the airwaves informing people that this study showed that Neurontin is significantly more effective than placebo for diabetic neuropathy. And when you start to dig through the data, what did you discover? What we discovered is that the study design of this study is a bit unusual. People were started on 900 milligrams of Neurontin, which is a good dose to start on, but their dose was taken up to 3,600 milligrams over a few weeks. And that is twice the recommended maximum, the FDA recommended maximum dose. So even those patients who had pain relief at a lower dose were subjected to the higher dose all the way up to 3,600 milligrams. And what happened with so many patients at that high level of dosage, over half of the patients had side effects. So the, the 
article itself in JAMA acknowledged that there could be a problem in unblinding the study because people who had side effects would be more likely to know they got the active drug Neurontin than the placebo drug. So what they did is they backed out the people, approximately 24% of people who were tired, um, and it made no difference in the results. And they backed out the 23% of people who were dizzy, and it made no difference in the results. And therefore, they concluded that the side effects hadn't unblinded the study. But because we were in litigation, and because we could focus in on this, we figured out that the manufacturer had backed out one symptom at a time, and then put it back and backed out the other symptom and found no change. But what they hadn't done is back out everybody who had a side effect from Neurontin and see if their pain scores were significantly better before they were experiencing side effects. Again, I, I doubt the FDA had seen this, virtually certain that the peer reviews had, peer reviewers hadn't seen this, and a statistician was able to run the data and look at the pain scores for the visit just before people develop side effects and found that 90% of the benefit of the Neurontin, the purported benefit of the Neurontin, went away when you looked at only the pain scores from before they had side effects. So what we found is that this study was manipulated to force people to take twice the recommended FDA dose, have side effects, and therefore be unblinded by the side effects, uh, help them to understand they were getting the active drug, Neurontin. So basically, if you push the drug level up, you'll get an increased level of side effects. So therefore, it's easier for the people on the active drug to know if they're on the active drug. And the two key side effects was sleepiness and dizziness. And there'd been a sleight of hand by the trial investigators. They took out the group who'd suffered from sleepiness and said, oh, there's no difference. They took out the group that suffered from dizziness and said, no difference. But what they didn't do, they didn't take out the two groups, the sleepiness and the dizziness at the same time. And it was doing that that showed the difference. That's exactly right. And I, I remember well the session, the uh, sort of brainstorming session that I had with a younger doctor and a lawyer uh, to figure out why this article had found that Neurontin was effective for diabetic neuropathy when their other studies were not showing that. And we just sat at a conference table until we got to exactly what you just uh, described, that they were taking out one side effect at a time instead of all side effects at once. And then we called for the data and found out what the truth was. But that's the problem, isn't it, John? Unless a paper is formally withdrawn, what you discovered about the JAMA paper, most people won't be aware of. But when they do a literature search, they'll go to JAMA, I think, reputable journal, this seems to show evidence of efficacy, and that is what stays in the doctor's mind. That's correct. The other thing that I would wonder if I was a peer reviewer looking at the JAMA paper was the use of a drug at twice the recommended FDA dose. Uh, I would certainly look at that too. Ages ago, I remember making a film about a bit of research, which turned out not to be true. And the problem was, not only did you have the original research paper, but then the fact that it's then quoted again by lots of other people in further research, and you build up this sort of database, all based on actually a piece of research that was never accurate to begin with. That's correct. Once the horses are out of the barn, once the 
belief is created amongst physicians that this drug is a good thing for them to prescribe for their patients. Their patients will benefit from it. Once that belief is imparted, it's like an indelible imprint in doctors' brains. It's very hard to undo. I, I hope if, if people take one thing away from this podcast, it's that what they think is peer-reviewed and therefore can be trusted has not been adequately vetted. And of course, the other issue, Professor Jewell, who had done the statistical analysis for this, went on to publish his study. But a study in a highly mathematical journal isn't read by the same number of people as a study in JAMA. That's exactly right. And frankly, uh, reading that article, it goes into statistics that I don't understand. He's a highly accomplished statistician. That's beyond me. So if I were reading that article, it wouldn't have made a significant impression. And you, after all, know an awful lot more about statistical analysis than most doctors. I do. So if you don't understand it, not much hope for everyone else. Then there's another study, the Reckless study for diabetic nerve pain, which is three times as many patients as the JAMA study. It's completed by Park Davis in 1999. And this shows there's no statistically significant difference between the neurontin groups and the receiver. But this is never published. It's not by accident that it's not published. And I think you discovered quite an interesting email from the drug company about that particular study. There were several emails about that study that are really important because now we've got, um, just to compare these two studies, the first study that was published in JAMA has 84 patients in it who are all taken up to a dose of 3,600 milligrams of Neurontin if they tolerate it. The second study has three times as many patients, as you said, and they were divided into three groups, fixed dose, 600, 1,200, and 2,400 milligrams of uh, Neurontin per day, so that this study wasn't forcing people into doses where they had side effects, and the blinding probably pretty much remained intact. Um, what happened is that this study did not produce any statistically significant uh, findings on the outcome measures. So the internal communications include language like this. Although I would love to publish something about the study, we should take care not to publish anything that damages Neurontin's marketing success. Another email said from, from the Neurontin Publication Subcommittee said, uh, they agreed that the results of the study should not be pushed for publication. They find out none of the studies work. And yet what they do is they make a very conscious decision that they're not going to publish this because it's going to hurt Neurontin's marketing. So there are a number of trials, none of which provide evidence that Neurontin works for broad nerve pain. However, Pfizer meets the FDA in May 2001 to discuss an application for this drug use seeking approval for the broad indication of neuropathic pain. But the FDA turned them down. However, in September of that year, Pfizer then convened another meeting, this time with independent pain consultants, to seek their help in getting that FDA approval. So what did these experts conclude? These experts looked at the data they had, and one of them said there's substantial evidence against a broad neuropathic pain claim. And another looked at the evidence and said simply, you're done. Meaning the FDA had it right. You don't have evidence for uh, to broaden the indication 
to what would sell the most neuron, which is treatment of neuropathic pain. You don't have it. So they've heard from the FDA, they've heard from their own consultants, they know what the data shows. And you would think they would pack up their bags and go look for another drug. Uh, they did just the opposite. They convened um, another group to integrate the messages that they that they had determined would sell the most neurontin for neuropathic pain. And they wrote a review article that came to the conclusion that neurontin is effective in doses up to 3,600 milligrams for neuropathic pain. This was a review article published in the Journal of Clinical Therapeutics. Correct. They've been working then with a PR company to develop key messaging, basically, to get across this idea that neurontin is effective for neuropathic pain. That's exactly right. And the, the, this term key messages is really important because key messages are what the marketing people determine will sell the most drug. Will, will Doctors will find it most appealing and patients will find it most appealing. So they develop these key messages which are independent, uh, they're scientific in the sense of being marketing research, but they're not medical research. But then they show a slide that says the key to successful marketing is to make sure that all of the scientific information that you publish gets put through a filter that screens out the information that's not in the key messages. And then you've got a situation where the articles that are published are consistent with your marketing materials, and that will optimize sales. And I think it's worth taking a look at some of those messages. One said that neurontin had proven efficacy for neuropathic pain. Another recommended increasing the dose of neurontin to 1,800 milligrams a day. The FDA approved maximum, even if the patient was experiencing relief at a lower dose. And a third said that doses up to 3,600 milligrams had been proven to be well-tolerated and effective in clinical studies. Correct. But their studies hadn't shown that. Their studies showed that when you force people up to 3,600 milligrams, more than half of them have a side effect. Um, it's not well tolerated and it's not effective. So I think I'm, I'm sounding like a broken gramophone here, John. But how, again, has this review article got published knowing what we know about the data? We know that about the data. As we talk, Liz, um, I spent probably two years in preparing for this litigation, going through the documents. We know that. But the journal that's receiving this uh, review article manuscript, they don't know what the data show. This, this situation needs to be changed. It's a market failure. So you've got all the individual players in this nexus of influence who are benefiting for themselves, and they're not going to break it up on their own. This is a classic situation where you need external government regulators to come in and say the public's not being served, this needs to be fixed. Even when I sometimes read the full details just within the paper that's published in a medical journal, in my experience, not uncommon to find what the discussion says and then think, how on earth have they come to that conclusion in the abstract? Because that's actually not what the discussion really shows. Yes, and that should be the job of peer reviewers. I never saw a study on how many doctors read the abstract compared to the whole article, but my hunch is it's pretty tipped towards the abstract only readers. Um, but that's an obvious thing for a peer reviewer to ensure that the abstract reflects the conclusion that's in the article. Because from a legal point of view, if they put it in the discussion of the article, they have disclosed it. But from a functional point of view, they're 
providing inaccurate information to doctors who they know, many of whom are going to just read the abstract. So, for example, I'm thinking of something I read recently, which talked about a substantial benefit. But when you actually looked at the data, it was too small to be clinically measurable. Yes. So basically, the trial continues. You've shown that there's no good clinical evidence for using the drug for bipolar disorder, no good evidence using it for neuropathic pain. There's no evidence that we should be doubling the FDA recommended dose. And I think the trial also looked at off-label prescribing for migraines. Yes, the same story. The evidence was not there. The marketing was illegal. One minor uh, addition I would like to make to what you were, the sum up of the neuropathic pain. There was a study called the Serpel study that was of mixed neuropathic pain, and that showed a significant benefit. But when there was a reanalysis of that Serpel study, it found that almost all the benefit came from people who had had shingles and had post-herpetic neuralgia. Now, that is an indication for which Neurontin is approved. So mixing in the patients who had post-herpetic neuralgia with the more common uh, nonspecific uh, neuropathic pain patients showed a significant benefit. But when you back out the post-herpetic neuralgia patients, there's not a significant benefit left in the other neuropathic pain patients. So it really muddies the data doing that. It does, exactly. So once all the evidence had been presented at the trial, did you have a sort of feeling about how the verdict was likely to go? When I was standing next to the jury explaining to them the details, rather geeky deal, details of the Gorson study and how um, the abstract in neurology had removed the control group from the initial results that were presented, when I saw this group of 12 people react to that, they understood it. So. Anyone who says this is too complicated for doctors, that's not true. It was not too complicated for that jury. But at that point, when I had that, you know, just several feet away from the jury and I could feel their reaction, I was pretty sure that they were going to understand what happened here and justice would be served. And indeed, when the verdict came in, the federal jury found, and I quote, Pfizer and its subsidiary, Warner Lambert, had engaged in a racketeer-influenced and corrupt organization's enterprise that committed mail and wire fraud by fraudulently marketing Neurontin for off-label conditions such as bipolar disorder, neuropathic pain, and migraine. That's correct. And Pfizer appealed that decision and lost. Were you surprised or perhaps disappointed that the case didn't receive more media attention? I was absolutely shocked. It was mind-blowing that this didn't receive media attention. The media did not cover this. I just published a book in last February, but I must say that the media has not covered my book the same way they've not covered the Neurontin trial. And that this is a very important part of the story that I didn't understand well enough when I finished my book, but it should have an additional chapter uh, that says, why don't doctors and the public understand that this is going on? What I've learned is that there's a reason why doctors and the public don't know that this system of commercially biased information being delivered to doctors and patients is doing such a disservice to our healthcare. And that's because the mainstream media outlets that we trust to provide us reasonable information 
are not covering this. You know, what we get is a bunch of drug ads that create misimpressions about the efficacy of drugs, but we don't hear people presenting responsible, critical ideas about the drug industry. They've been pushed out of the mainstream media. So we can't even have a discussion of this. So when we look at other countries and we say, well, that's totalitarian totalitarian country and their people are just fed propaganda. This is the liberal version of that thought control. I don't know what your reaction is, John, but speaking to other people that work in drug safety and related fields, they think it's actually got worse that there was more discussion about this 10, 15 years ago. I'm sure that's right, because I published my first book in 2004, a week before Vioxx got pulled, which was the biggest drug company recall in U.S. history. But I was all over the TV. And then when anything came up about drugs, the folks would call me and I would go on TV and give a responsible summary of what we know. But you just don't see that anymore. But John, the story doesn't really end there. Because despite the court finding, and I quote, there is little or no scientifically accepted evidence that Neurontin is effective for the treatment of bipolar disorder, neuropathic pain, or migraine. While the FDA has only ever approved Neurontin for secondary epilepsy treatment and nerve pain after shingles, that's not true in a number of other countries. So when I looked to see what the situation was in the UK, Neurontin, or the generic form of the drug, Gabentian, is actually licensed here for peripheral neuropathic pain. And the UK's National Institute of Clinical Excellence, NICE, recommends the drug as a first-line treatment option for adults with all neuropathic pain except sudden severe facial pain. So how's that happened? I think part of it is explained by this terrible opioid crisis we have with the overuse of opioids and an attempt to help people with difficult-to-treat pain. But how it really happens is the information that we talked about in the first two-thirds of this podcast that showed how the studies were, that positive studies were preferentially brought forward and negative studies were pushed back and studies where the design was manipulative to create side effects, all those issues, they get lost. And it's just the studies that were published that stand. We don't have a hardy mechanism of sharing with doctors what the scientific evidence really shows. What's really important is that NICE does not have access to the underlying patient data. They're relying on non-transparent published articles, and they're not getting the data for themselves uh, to analyze for themselves. Now, that makes no sense to me whatsoever. NICE certainly has the resources, if they got the patient-level data, to analyze that patient-level data. In this instance, with uh, gabapentin for neuropathic pain, I think NICE is kind of doing what the peer reviewers are doing, which is certifying the accuracy and completeness of the evidence without having seen the evidence. And your 2010 court case actually followed an earlier court case in 2004, which also dealt with off-label use. One would hope that the regulators look at that information. I don't have any evidence that they did. When um, you sent me the references for the NICE recommendation, but I don't see any evidence that they were using unpublished data that they had access to patient-level data. This isn't just in the UK. In various other European countries, the drug is also licensed for neuropathic use. Yes, but I want to point out 
almost all the studies were done by the time I wrote the report that we're talking about here. Pfizer's consultants said, you're done. You, the evidence isn't there. And yet most of the information that they now rely on to say that it works, approves, you know, use it for people with neuropathic pain was in, in existence back then. It's kind of depressing, John, because you think despite the court case, nothing's changed. That's right. I mean, it, it's really a paradigm problem. It's how doctors are taught to receive information. What information is legitimate and what information is not legitimate. The two-line conclusion of the abstract of an article published in a peer-reviewed article is legitimate, whereas the details of what was found in the court case that showed why this information wasn't trustworthy is not legitimate. What happens there is not legitimate. So doctors don't integrate that into their thinking. And the court case is the only place where we have full transparency. That's exactly right. And despite that, even in the US, most prescribing of neurontin is off-label. And I think you say now the sixth most frequently prescribed drug in the US. Yeah, it varies between six and 10, but yes. Well, John, it sounds like we've got a huge amount of reform needed to change things. We do. But thank you so much for sparing the time to talk today. It's an extraordinary story. Well, thank you. And we have so much to talk about. And without folks like yourself who are willing to roll up your sleeves and dig into this stuff and figure out what the heck happened, the public would know nothing about it. So non-commercial sources of information now are incredibly important in getting this out to the public and to doctors so that it can be raised to the level of an issue that we have to address as a society. Thanks, John. Really appreciate that. Thank you for your work. Yep. Bye-bye. Goodbye. So I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of What Your GP Doesn't Tell You. And a reminder, you can sign up to the podcast mailing list at whatyourgpdoesnttellyou.com. If you would like to support the podcast, you can do so either at patreon.com slash whatyourgpdoesnttellyou or via PayPal at whatyourgpdoesnttellyou.com. Next week, I'm talking to one of the world's leading cardiologists, Dr. Eric Topple, about the need to democratise medicine. And he also reveals how the smartphone has the potential to transform our health and save healthcare systems across the world billions of dollars. So do join me next week to find out more. Many thanks for listening. Bye for now. <laughs>